0: How are you guys doing? Good. It's good to be home. Yes. I don't... If you're new, um, I was with a team and we were in Africa for a couple of weeks and we got back on Monday. Super, super good time. Uh, I think you guys were blessed as well. I've got to tune in a little bit to Mike Yunker and to Jim Wright. What a blessing those guys are. Uh, total privilege to have them. So in Africa, uh, just real quick, I won't, we'll talk more later on this, but really we are after two things. Uh, the Folkstat family had been over there for about five years and done some work in Uganda, so we visited that. Uh, visited the fish farm that they put in. It raises 20,000 fish to help feed the school that's next door and, and really start to build up the church that's also next door. So just a brilliant, brilliant ministry there. Uh, love that. Out in a village, very kind of rural and remote and more my style. And then we went to uh, Nairobi, It's also referred to as Nairobi because Dick Worthington almost got mugged there. You can talk to, I don't know what he said, I wasn't in here, but fascinating place, just fascinating. And we visited the church uh, that 10 years ago we partnered in starting with Pastor Douglas Mukisa. Uh, He's been faithfully working there. His heart is not to grow a big church like in the nice part of Nairobi and there's super nice parts in Nairobi, his heart is, I want to be in the slums and working with the slums and working in the Makuru slums. So really what we did until Sunday service was we would go into the slums and sit in people's homes and hear their story and your heart would be broken because you'd be inside this room that is the size of our bathroom and five or six or seven people would live in that room made of pieces of tin and pieces of rope. And when it rains, sewage would flood into their homes and you walk outside and there's sewage just running down the streets. And that's hard. I mean, you can go to one or two of those and feel okay, but you do that day after day after day and you start to be like, God, where are you? 700,000 people live in the Makuru slums. And I'd ask them, how long have you been here? one of the questions I would ask. 30 years, 25 years, same place, same hopes, same dreams, dashed month after month after month and year after year, year. So just like, ah. And that's the smaller of the two slums in Nairobi. The big slum, the Kibera slum is 1.3 million. So 2 million people in Nairobi, a city of 4 million, Half of the population live in these slums. So just, just hard. And there was a moment that was very important to me. We had just been in one of these homes and we'd listened to uh, a lady give her story and her kids were in there as well. And as I'm walking out, Douglas grabs me because she had a 15-year-old son. And he said this, he said, pray for him. I said, Why? because last week he was arrested by the police for being involved in a robbery. And here's what's really dangerous. The police in Nairobi have been given carte blanche, no matter what, if a slum kid is involved in a crime, shoot to kill. That's just the way it is. And so you would be talking to these young men and they would have friends who had been murdered by the police. So that's just the way it is. So. This young man, 15 years old, you know, been in the church for most of his life, 10 years, is dancing on a very, very precarious line. So just my heart was broken by that. This great mom who's trying her best inside the slums and inside a system that it's just stacked against you. So I walk out of that and I'm walking down this little alleyway. Sewage is running beside me and it's really narrow. It's like three feet wide. And heart really was just low at that point. And it's like I came out and then the sun was out and I looked up and this is what I saw. I saw this. Yeah. And it meant I almost just started bawling because in the midst of all this brokenness and all this pain is this, one of the most beautiful little children I've ever seen in my life. And it was like, God was saying to me, Matt, I'm at work here. My work and my beauty and my light are not limited to America or to prosperity or the boundaries of a slum do not keep me out. I'm at work here. And, it was, and I don't take pictures very often. You can ask all the people I'm with. I think I have like 10 pictures from the entire trip, but I had to get this picture because it's just a memory of this, yeah. And the verse that came to my mind as I was looking at her was, Isaiah 61.3 that says, I'll give you beauty for ashes. That what, ashes are what's left when you don't want anything. That's the slums. Shoot to kill, right? They're just ashes. They don't matter. And God says, in the midst of that, the hardest, most desperate situations, I'll give you beauty. Like this young lady. So, great time. We'll talk more about it. But all that actually introduces a series we're going to be talking about. We did happiness before I left. Uh, this is going to be a contrast to that. It's going to be in the Psalms and we're going to do about five Psalms and each of them have kind of a direction I want to take them. And most of the Psalms that are called Psalms of lament, where they're, they're like cries like you have in the slums where you're like, ah, almost all of the songs of lament, they end like a 1980s sitcom. Remember Those. There's a big problem, the family would freak out. But how did all the 1980s sitcoms end? There was a solution and everybody lived happily ever after until next Tuesday at eight o'clock, right? Great 80s music, they were awesome. Most of the Psalms of Lament are like that. Like, God, where are you at, where are you at? And then they, they, they end with this, oh, God, I remember who you are. You're my redeemer you're my strong tower. You're my warrior. You're my king. You're my creator. You're my sustainer. You're my shepherder. You're my comforter, right? My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. They're gonna chase after me my whole life. That's the majority of the songs or psalms of laments. They're just like that. But what about when that's not the way things are? When it's 25 or 30 years of the same thing. Where it's not, oh God, everything worked out well for me. It's, I don't see it. Is there a Psalm like that in the Bible? Is there a Psalm where things aren't pretty? It's not a 1980s sitcom. It's I went on the mission field and got malaria. It's I went on the mission field and got mugged in Nairobi. Is there one like that? Where there's no life, and no light and no love. Well, there is. And it's very unique. So if you would turn with me to Psalm 88, I'm going to read the whole thing through and then we're going to talk about it. So I want you to listen carefully to this Psalm. It's the most unique Psalm out of the 150 in the book of Psalms. There's nothing like it. Psalm 88. Oh, Yahweh, Yahweh, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the rains of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, And you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Yahweh. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in abandon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Yahweh, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Oh, Yahweh, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Merry Christmas. <laughs> the guy needs a hug, doesn't he? <laughs> what a dark, dark psalm, right? There is nothing happy or positive. In this psalm, it's unique out of the 150. There's no redemption, there's no hope, there's nothing. The author is emotional, he's angry, he's complaining, he's bitter, he blames God for everything. And Psalm 88 is probably my favorite psalm. Maybe that's more of a reflection on me than anything else. When I'd order tea in Africa, they'd always be like, do you want cream and sugar? And I'd say, no, I want it bitter, just like me. (laughs) It's a brilliant, brilliant psalm, though. Here's the reason why I love it, because I've been in Psalm 88. I've felt this way at times. I've wondered where God is. I've questioned and I've doubted. It felt dark all around me, right? I've lived this. And so there was a time in my life that I actually sat down with Psalm 88 and I just started writing out, why do I like this Psalm so much? And I have a big list. I'm gonna give you four today. Four reasons why I love this Psalm. Hopefully you'll love it too when I'm done. So reason number one why I love Psalm 88 is I love it because it's honest. So if you look at verse one, notice what he says. Oh Yahweh, God of my salvation. The author, his name is He Man, what a great name. The author of this psalm is a believer in the creator of the universe. Oh Yahweh, covenant name of God, you're the God of my salvation. So he starts out, even though it's dark and hard and difficult, he starts out, you're my God. You're my God. This is not an angry, unbelieving atheist's rage against God. This is a desperate believer's plea for him to come near, to remember him, to know him, right? Now, I'm going to guess most of us in this room, the reason why we got up and the reason why we came here this morning, most of us in this room are believers in God. And if you can remember back to your salvation when, when you realized you needed God and you realized Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and you accepted that, there's a honeymoon period, remember that? Where everything is just awesome. You're Emmett in the Lego movie. Like, everything is amazing. You look at the life, look at life through rose-colored glasses. The Bible just comes alive to you. Every Bible verse you read becomes your new favorite Bible verse. That's my favorite Bible. No, that's my favorite Bible verse. Right? Whenever you come to church, you sit and it feels like whoever's teaching the message was exactly the message for you. You're like, wow, who? How'd they know? It's incredible. You wake up in the morning, you have a question about your faith, you have a question about God, and you get in your car and you turn on the radio, and they're talking about that question. Whoa! Yeah! You're at the coffee shop and you sneeze and someone says, God bless you, and you say, He has blessed me! Thank you! Right? Remember that time? And those are great times. But they don't always last. Sometimes... The honeymoon period goes to a Psalm 8, D8, period where it's dark and you question and you doubt and you wonder and you're disappointed. And I love Psalm 88 because it's really honest about this walk of faith. It doesn't make it pretty. It doesn't make it candy coated. It allows you and me to see other people have gone through this time where they question, where they ask of God and they can't seem to hear him, where they're wondering about why this this is happening to them and they don't get any answers, where the once flowing river of life that was sustaining you now becomes clogged and gross and stagnant. And what Psalm 88 says is this, you're normal, I'm normal. It's okay to not be okay, Psalm 88. How honest and how refreshing is that? I don't have to pretend. I don't have to play a game. I can be honest like this guy right here. Such a comfort to me. So I love Psalm 88, number one, because it's honest about this walk of faith. I love it, number two, because it's pure. Pure, look at the end of verse one and two. I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. This guy in this state, what is he doing? He's praying. The final word, it's in my version as well, The final word in the Hebrew, though, of Psalm 88 is darkness. Over and over it says darkness. It ends in darkness. And what he says is this. Hey, God, you used to be my best friend. Now my only friend is darkness. That's this psalm. You used to be my shepherd. You used to be my comforter. You used to be the one that was my strong tower. You used to be there for me. Now, all I have, my only companion is my darkness. In spite of that, this man is praying. And I love that because he's not praying to get something from God. He's getting zero from God right now. He's getting darkness from God but he stays and he prays and he perseveres. It doesn't push him away from God. It actually makes him desperate and longing for God. I love that. It's the book of Job. If you know that book, the book of Job is super simple. Satan comes and says, God, the only reason why Job serves you is because you are his sugar daddy. Because you're giving him all kinds of stuff. Who wouldn't serve you? If you blessed him like you blessed Job. Take away that stuff and he will curse you to your face. That's the whole book of Job. Job, are you serving God for what God gives you? Or are you serving God because of who God is to you? Which is it? That's the entire book of Job. And Job comes forth shining. Psalm 88 is the book of Job In cliff notes, he's still praying. In the midst of his struggle, in the midst of his despair, in the midst of this darkness, he's still praying. And he's not praying to rub the God genie to get three wishes from him. He's praying and seeking God because he knows God is his creator and sustainer and only hope. Not that I'm trying to get something from him. He's the only one I have. Do you know how huge that is? This is to me, book of Job, Psalm 88, the best spiritual warfare in existence. If you can live through dark times like Job or dark times like Psalm 88, and it not drive you away from God and drive you away from prayer, but instead causes you to dig in and pray, what does the enemy have left? Nothing. It's Romans 16, 20 you're crushing the serpent under your foot when you do Psalm 88. That darkness doesn't drive you from God. It makes you more desperate for him, for his light and his life and his love. And you keep praying and you keep seeking him, not because of what he gives you, but because of who he is. It's brilliant. It's pure. I love it thirdly because it tells you and me something about God's character, that God is safe. That if you read this Psalm, what you notice is this, God can handle whatever. So think for a minute, let me try to phrase this in the way I see Psalm 88. So let's imagine you're on Instagram and you see a post from somebody that you know and it's like Psalm 88. It's desperate, it's suicidal, it's dark. So you're like, I better go visit this guy. So you pack everything up, you go over, you begin to knock on this guy's door. All you hear is moaning and groaning inside the house. So you kind of push open the door, all the lights are out, it's pitch black in there, and you walk in and your friend sees you. And you're trying to start to console him. And this is what your friend begins to do to you. He looks at you and he says, you're the reason I lost my job. You're the reason I'm bankrupt. You're the reason my wife left me. You're the reason I've got cancer. You're the reason all my friends hate me. Would you then go home, get on Instagram, and post all that for everybody to say, hey, I just had this conversation with my friend, and this is what he said about me. Would you post that? God did. God did. He posted this man's crazy rantings in the best-selling book in history. Like, just look at what this guy says about him. Look at verse eight. You have caused my companions to shun me. Like he's saying, God, it's your fault. No one likes me. Is that fair? Hmm. Gets worse. Not just verse 8, verse 18. You have caused my beloved that he's talking about his wife. You've caused my wife and my friends to shun me. You're the reason my wife doesn't like me, God. How fair is that? Keeps going. Really, the entire psalm is about it. Verse 15, afflicted and close to death, I suffer your terrors. I am hopeless. Your wrath has swept over me. The reason why I have all these problems, God, is because of you. He's blaming God for every issue and every problem in his life. Verse 8, you have made me a terror, a horror to everybody. It's insanity. So all this is written about God. And how does God respond? You said what about me? Oh, me. Hell for you. You're going to hell now. Does God respond that way? How's God respond? I'm going to put your poem, your lament, and I'm going to put it inside the best-selling book in history. I'm not going to censor it. I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to cut out sections of it. I'm going to leave it raw and real just like you wrote it. And I'm putting it not on Instagram with whatever, a million followers. I'm putting it in my book that billions and billions will read. How amazing is that? How safe is God then? What Psalm 88 tells you and me is this. God is safe. He can handle whatever you got. That God doesn't love you and me because we put on smiley faces and we quote Psalm 1 and we look just perfect. And then God's like, okay, good, you're in. Oh, you Psalm 88 guy, you're out. What Psalm 88 says to you and me is this, God's safe. He can handle whatever you've got. That you can pour out your heart to him. Pour it out. We gotta grasp this because one of the greatest attacks of the enemy is to say to you and me, we have to pretend to be something that we're not in order for God to love us. One of the greatest attacks of the enemy is where he gets this into our heart, almost like um, God tolerates you right now, but he's waiting for a better version of you out there. You ever felt that way? That when I stop doing these things and when I start doing these things, then God really will love me. That cannot be further from the truth. That is a demonic lie from Satan himself. Psalm 88 says, "Uh uh-uh, no way. So I'll try to illustrate this. I've used this before. It's the best illustration I have. Here's how I think God the Father's love works. I have five kids. My youngest, Myron, he's six. When Myron was about two and a half, three years old, this happened on a Saturday morning. I was at home. Charity, my wife, was out running. She was running around. Um, I knew that she was going to be gone. She had five, she just texted me on my computer. I got about five miles to go. So I knew it'd take her about 10 minutes to run home. So (laughs) I knew we had a little bit of space. I go in to check. And Myron, my three-year-old, two and a half-year-old, he's on the toilet. And in Uganda, they have two ways of asking, like, what do you need to do? Short call? Short call? or a long call, right? I love those. Got a short call, a long call. He was on a long call, right? So he's on the toilet, long calling it. And at that age, he still needed help. So I wait, he's finished. I say, okay, buddy. I start to grab some toilet paper. And he looked at me, and goes, not you. (laughs) I want mommy. I said, okay, buddy, listen. Mommy's like five miles away right now. Um, It's going to be a long time, so I just need to wipe you. Not you. I want mommy. I said, buddy, listen. You're not saving this like a present for your mother. (laughs) Okay, I lost the lottery right now. That's what this is. This is not a gift that you're going to give mom when she gets home. I'm going to wipe you, and then we're going to be done. Not you. Okay, bud. I just let him sit there. He's still there. <laughs> okay. That did, did, that did not diminish my love for my son. I'm not waiting for him to use the toilet correctly or to let me wipe him or whatever it is. I We mean, love him. He still climbs into bed with us and and he always does the H thing, you know, where he turns and it's always legs towards me and he kicks me in the kidney, right? But I still love him. Not waiting for him to bench 300 pounds. The 220 he does right now is just good. Not waiting for the NFL combine for him to show off his skills, represent. I can't imagine loving Myron more than I do right now. That's the father's love for us. He's not waiting for you to get some things right or do this stuff better. He just says, I love you. Even when you're Psalm 88. You can give me your worst, math. And it will not change my opinion of you. Because I love you because I love you. There is no other reason. I don't love you because of what you do or who you are. I love you because I have chosen to love you. And that love will never change for you. It's the brilliant, incredible nature of our Heavenly Father. I love Psalm 88 because it tells me something about God's character. He is safe. And fourthly and lastly, I love it because God uses it. So He-Man has this raw, desperate psalm. Right? It's as raw and as desperate as any text in the Bible. God sees what He-Man has written and says, perfect. I'm going to place that in sacred scripture. When He-Man was writing his Psalm 88, do you think that he thought, man, I'm writing scripture right now? No way, right? Right? It's a desperate moment. It's a dark time. He just pours out all of his emotions. He had no idea that God was going to grab it and use it. He had no idea that 2,500 years later, Matt Heverly would say, hey, that's one of my favorite psalms. He had no idea that a church in Grant's past would be like, we got to study this psalm. Wow, it's amazing. He didn't know any of that, right? It was just this raw, desperate moment. And God, listen to me very carefully, God could not tell He-Man, bro, you're writing scripture, because what would happen if he told him that? Thank you, Trevor. It's coronavirus. (laughs) I just got back from Africa. So we flew into Dubai on the way over and maybe one in 20 had a, one of those face masks on. We fly back two weeks later through Dubai, 50%. Like you could just see panic just going like wildfire. Totally off the subject. Psalm 88, so he man writes this thing just desperate, just his journal essentially, that's all it is. He's journaling how he feels. God grabs it and says, that is brilliant. I'm putting that into the best-selling book ever. But God could never tell He-Man, hey, you're writing the Bible. Because what would He-Man do? Oh, I can't be that raw. I better change some things. I better tweak that. I better make that language sound a little bit softer. I better not say that about God, right? The only way you can pen Psalm 88 is in the dark. That's the only way you can write it you have to be in darkness to write masterpieces like Psalm 88. Because if you did know, if the light glittered in, it would ruin it. So God has this dilemma. He wants to author masterpieces with our lives. He wants Ephesians 2, 10 moments that are brilliant and beautiful, but the only way that they can actually happen is if it's dark, is if we don't understand, is if it's hard and difficult. That's the only way they happen. That's what Psalm 88 tells us. But here's the problem with you and me. Most of us in this room are afraid of the dark. We're afraid of what could happen. What will God do? Right? Right? If I wholly gave my life to God, what would happen with my life? Anyone ever fear that? If I said, okay, God, I am selling out to you. I'll do whatever you ask. It does not matter. Are you afraid of what God might ask you to do? So let's say, I'll prove it. Let's say right now, God just in the most tangible way possible said this. I want you to leave your family and I want you to leave Edgewater and Grants Pass and your retirement and your job and your career and your friends. And I want you to move to Nairobi and I want you to minister to the slums of Nairobi. Who here would be like, yeah, praise God, let's do it. Yeah, Two of us and not me. That was not my hand raised to say I'm doing it. Why? Because we're afraid of the dark. That sounds hard. That sounds difficult. I don't think I want to do that. But do you know what? The Bible is full of people that were afraid of the dark. Just Wednesday night, we studied Moses. Moses' call at the end of chapter 3, in the beginning, in most of chapter 4, when he is called to lead the people out of Israel, is Moses like, yeah, sign me up. Huh, it's a brilliant, I mean, you wanna learn how to make excuses? Study Exodus three and four. Like Moses makes every excuse in the world not to be used by God. Jeremiah the prophet, when he is told, hey, Jeremiah, you're in, what does Jeremiah do? Please choose somebody else. Like anyone but me. I got a brother, you check him out. Ezekiel, when he gets chosen, Read Ezekiel three 15. Seven days straight, he fasts in sackcloth, just like, ugh, man. How about Jonah? Was Jonah stoked to be used by God? Dude, ran the other way, right? Listen, the Bible is full of these reluctant people, like, I just don't know. I don't know if I trust God. I don't know if I want to go in the darkness. That's too hard. Ah. <sighs> He might write Psalm 88 with my life. And that's dark and hard. You could add my name to that list. I'm probably the most reluctant minister in the history of pastors. I can remember, like, my bio if you're new. Eight years old, sitting in a little church called Gospel Outreach Church, legalistic, crazy, charismatic church that it was, just dysfunctional. And I'm sitting there as an eight year old, and this guy named Floyd was preaching. And he's telling us all the things that we could not do. You can't watch TV. You can't wear makeup. Women can't wear pants. You can't uh, go to dances. You can't do any TV stuff. You can't go to movies. Just everything we could not do, right? I remember sitting there as an eight-year-old thinking, man, one day I'll do that. One day I'll stand up in front of people and tell them everything they cannot do. Cannot wait for that. As an eight-year-old, I knew it, right? But like Jonah, I ran. So I just thing that all the seniors at grants pass high would fill out. And it was one of the questions was, where will you be in five years? And I read it a couple years ago, just like reminiscing. And I've got these friends that are like, I'm going to save the world. And I'm going to be in the Peace Corps and I'm going to start a nonprofit and all these like really great things. Guess what mine was? I'm going to be making lots of money. That's it. That was all. What are you going to do in five years? Making a lot of money. Nothing else matters. So, I went to Oregon State, got my engineering degree, and then I came home, and it was the summer after I graduated, and it was a lull. If you remember, 95 was a really hard time. Like, pretty much the day I graduated, 3,000 Boeing engineers were laid off. You want a hard market to get a job as an engineer? Brand new out of school? Go up against 3,000 Boeing engineers. So, it was just like, and I turned down a job at GE or at General Motors because I did not want to live in Detroit. So, I'm like, ah. So, I was doing construction. And it was a Monday night, I got a phone call from a friend. He said, hey, there's this thing that I'm doing tomorrow and they need some help. It's called Wilderness Trails. Can you come help us? And this is before Google or any of that kind of stuff. So I'm like, what is wilderness trails? He goes, Well, wilderness trails is this thing where you take like teenagers, 16, 17, 18-year-olds, and they're from like uh, Pitchford Boys Home and they're from like Juvie Jail and you get them for five days and you go up to the Sky Lakes Wilderness and you hike around the, all of Sky Lakes Wilderness for six days or five days with them. And I'm like, why would you do that? <laughs> that sounds like a horror movie, man. Someone's gonna die up there. Right? But to make a long story short, I jumped in. and said, well, I didn't have work that week, so okay, fine. So I do this trip, and it was hard. You're a referee. I broke up fights. You're a nurse. I handed out Ritalin and Prozac and just tons of these medications. I mean, it's just, you're, just, you're in charge of these kids. Like, this kid gets this every morning. All right. Uh, just, just, you know, part parent, part cheerleader, cook. Right? So when it was all done, I was ready to depart. I'm like, ah, I got to go home. But I remember I was at home. I was reflecting on that five-day trip. I remember this thing that was in me was like, that was life though. It was hard, but wow, that was life. That was good. And a seed was planted. And maybe two years later, this kid comes running up to me his name is Brian. Running, I'm looking, at am like, who is that? And he just gives me this big bear hug. Is a kid from the Pitchford Boys Home who was in my group on that first wilderness trail t- trip I ever took. And he goes, man, I found Jesus. Thank you so much for that trip you took me on. And I went, whoa, that's cool. And so that was like this watering of this seed. So I decided, you know what? I'm not gonna do engineering. I'm gonna go in the ministry. And so I signed up for the school of ministry out at Applegate, started into that, and and I had to deal with God. I said, God, listen, I'm going to teach the Bible. I don't want to go in the mission field. I don't want to eat bugs. I don't want to do any of that kind of stuff. I'm going to teach the Bible, Okay. So school ministry was my opportunity. I just studied and studied and read as many books as I could, and did everything I could to prepare for like teaching the Bible. Like I'll be a high school pastor. I'll teach kids the Bible. And then on the weekends, I'll go to the lake with them. It'll be awesome. That's what I'm going to do. So school ministry gets over and they say, hey, we want to send you on the mission field in Vanuatu." I said, what? That sounds like I don't want to, okay? That's what that sounds like. And I'm giving you my answer right now. I said, do they eat bugs over there? No, they don't. But they eat bats. I'm like, that's worse. I don't want to eat a bat. But I prayed and I fasted. And I went. And it was hard and dark and difficult. But it was one of the best years of my unmarried life. It was brilliant. Give me a heart for missions and a heart for what God is doing throughout our world. It was so good for me. So then, fast forward, Edgewater starts, and I said, Okay, God, that's my deal. I'm gonna teach your word. That's what I'm gonna focus on. I'm gonna teach your word. And then, about seven years ago, that was disrupted because foster care was like just thrust on us. I think it was the only way I would have ever gotten into it was if it was just, I had no, I was backed into a corner, like, I don't have any choice here. And my wife is agreeing to do it, and my kids are agreeing to do it. So it's like six to one. I'm like, Oh, okay, fine. I guess we're gonna do foster care now goodness, God, how much more do you want from me? <laughs> right? So these kids, I mean, you, I have five kids of my own. So now we have seven kids. We got nine adults and I live in a single room cabin. I'm kidding. we in a three bedroom. <laughs> but that's a lot of people in our home. And these two new kids, different tribe. I'm like, this is a fork. You use the fork to eat your food. That's your hand. You do not use your hand to eat your food, right? It was like basic stuff like that. So starting on that, hard, dark, difficult. I could write Psalm 88 during that time. But man, life, brilliant, incredible, so enriching. My heart grew bigger and I just said, okay, God, yeah, I'm into this thing called foster care. This is really, really good. To be a hero to a kid, there's nothing better. And two of the boys that came through our home, our good friends, the Langellas, invited them in and now have adopted them. And so we're like now aunt and uncle to Arrow and Terrain. And we get to come over to our house and feed them lots of sugar and send them home so they freak out. <laughs> yeah, go. He drank an entire Mountain Dew. Yeah, I love him. <laughs> it's awesome. Okay, I will do this. And then three years ago, In August, get this phone call. My wife does. A three-year-old boy found in a car with a dog bite on his face and malnourished. And his little brother was just born over in the NICU in Medford. And he was born addicted to heroin. Do you guys want to take him? I'm like, no, a drug baby. We learned about drug babies in foster care classes. They told us how hard they were. No, we're not doing a drug, baby. My wife says, we have to do this. We have to do it. And my kids, we have to do this. I'm like, God, really? You're gonna turn my family against me? My beloved is shunning me now. I feel it. (laughs) But we brought Harry and Hunter into our home. And I... I'm going to cry. I've never had a kid outside of my own family get into my heart like Harry did. Like there's you you bring a baby into your home and it's the design that God has put in us where they just become yours. And Harry was amazing. Hard. Oh my goodness. I, I mean, ha! Huh. Not for me, for my wife. Like, oh goodness! I slept in the garage for months because it was so hard. Like, I gotta get sleep, sweetie. I gotta be up in the morning and do my job. Hard, the hardest ever. But my wife was like a rocket boost for him. Whatever Harry missed in the womb, my wife made it up. And the doctors just amazed. We can't believe this kid. Like off the charts, good. Like he was never on drugs. We're just amazed at this kid, how well he is doing. Like I got all the good stuff. My wife did all the work and I got all the joy. And Harry has this laugh. And I showed this video, I don't know, two and a half, three years ago. But I show it again because this laugh is just, it's priceless. I'll just play this video sometimes when I'm in a Psalm 88 mood. Look at this. (laughs) Oh, it's so crazy. he's so pretty. Hey, Harry! Hey, Harry! Hey, Harry! so funny. Hunter! Hi. Hi, buddy. Hi. She's ready bro. <laughs> and I would come home from work And I was the we, we got him straight from the NICU Actually my wife was over in Medford When he was in the NICU Visiting him and holding him so I was the only dad he knew for the first part of his life. So I'd come home from work and he would see me and he would army crawl over to me and then he would just get at my feet and he'd just hold up one arm. And I'd just pick him up and he, would just, he was a nestler and he would just nestle in. So I said, okay, God, we'll do drug babies too. I could go on and on and on. Every time it seems like that's dark, that's hard, that's difficult, When I actually obey, sometimes kicking and screaming and, God, why are you doing this to me? And you've turned my family against me and everyone hates me. When I go, what I find is it's a masterpiece. It's brilliant. God uses it and grows me and changes me. Vanuatu and foster care and wilderness trails and whatever it is, he uses it and I grow. Like, Psalm 88 is an invitation to actually trust. Like, the only time you can trust God is when you're in a Psalm 88 situation, right? If you know everything and everything is peachy good and it's Psalm 1 for you, are you trusting God there? No. The only time you really have to trust God is when it's super, super dark, like this. It's Psalm 88. And I'm telling you, as a reluctant minister, when you trust him in dark times, masterpieces are written. Masterpieces are written. And so I was going to end just right there, but I really felt yesterday morning that maybe you came in this morning and you feel like you're in Psalm 88. It's hard. It's dark. You've been betrayed, disappointed. You're doubting. You're questioning. You're wondering. It seems like there's an iron dome over earth and your prayers don't seem to be getting through and you keep wondering, where's God? Your marriage is on the rocks. Your kids are going crazy. You're financially in ruins. It just feels like, It's dark. I hope Psalm 88 helps you. But there's another way that I can help you today. And that's by praying for you. The Galatians 6 says when someone's overcome with this kind of stuff, you that are spiritual, hey, come alongside them and pray for them. Considering yourself because the same thing can happen to you. That's okay not to be okay. But don't stay that way get prayed for. So if you feel like you're a Psalm 88 person today, I just ask you to slip your hand up and hold it up and then I just want to pray for you. Pray that God authors a masterpiece that you could not imagine through your dark time. One person there's a few more. There's a few more. What I'm going to ask is for the people around you to lay their hands on you because the Bible talks about that. That there's something that happens in that moment when someone will put their hand on you. It's that, that collectiveness of God's spirit pouring power into you. So raise your hand up. If you see a hand around you, just reach out your hand and put it on their shoulder and then I'm going to pray. So everyone that has a hand up should have arms on them. Jesus, today. Hard is not bad. That you grow us and you transform us through the deserts the dry times the Psalm 88 times and so I pray for each person that raised their hand in here who feel like they're authoring a he-man Psalm 88 in darkness I pray that they would know even though they're in the valley of the shadow of death of darkness that you are with them that you would this day show yourself strong on their behalf that you would take what the enemy wants to use for evil and that you would turn it for good and that they might see a glimmer of that even this day, this week. I pray that their roots, like the tree of Psalm 1, would dig deep and find water where they didn't think there was any. Refreshment, help. I pray, Lord God, that you would be with them and that we as your body would gather around them. So I pray for your faith, your face to shine upon them this day and for their faith to grow immeasurably through this time. I pray this in your name. Amen.